0: Thank you very much, Real Vision. I can't believe here we are. And after the de- my debacle from the first time you've let me back, um, and I have the great uh, pleasure of inviting uh, Luke. I'm almost terrible. I, I think I've called you uh, many different things. All, all nice. <laughs> it's Gro- Groman. 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 Yes, sir. Groman. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think um, as a little bit of background, I believe I was tweeting um and and you came in and, and offered an opinion, and I was like, "Oh, who's this guy?" <laughs> uh, and and I think what you wrote, I was kind of going, I was kind of scratching my head a little bit. And, and anyway, it was good because it, it it provoked. I think we had a bit of back and back and forward, particularly on that tweet. Uh, we were pursuing um, the. The relative values or relative merits, I should say, between the Chinese uh, currency and the dollar. So here we are now because I had hesitated and I, yeah, I am this Glaswegian thug when it comes to words and ideas, and I never shut up. I am going to shut up. And you're going to say. I thought. Grr! So I thought, no, no, no. Let, let's 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 thrash it out, and, and then you very very kindly sent me your paper. Uh, your your last I think update from July the first and and before handing over to you I I wanted to congratulate you I think it's a fantastic chart package you know what, what you bring together um, is is excellent um, you know a, a picture says a thousand words or whatever that that term is um, and and it's very well and of course everyone's trying to work out did you just get lucky last July when you were on real vision because you <laughs> di- you definitely nailed it so over to you.
1: <laughs> thank you. it's It's uh, very kind of you to say. Um, so, I guess did I get lucky on Real Vision when I was on there last June? And I think the answer is is no. I think the reason we were able to see that coming was because of the lens we were using. and a, a lot of what we try to do is get to get to why in our research. In other words, this is happening. We're, we're, we're seeing the symptoms of things, but we really want to get to the actual cause. And so, you know, I was reading through something you uh, put out both on Twitter. Uh, I watched an interview you did on Bloomberg recently. And I've been fascinated because I think our views are very, very simpatico. And one thing that for us is key is is trying to get to why this is happening, and so I watched your interview with with uh, Professor Werner, and it's interesting this breakdown that you've been highlighting as it relates to princes of the yen in terms of uh, the reserve creation relative to actual bank lending into the real economy. And I I agree with you that that's absolutely a critical a critical uh, divergence, and that it's really taken place over the last thirty to forty years. But one of the things we've been writing a lot about from a lot of different angles is the why this is happening and the why in our view is that it's a function of the way the US dollar's reserve status has been structured since 1971 and so basically as soon as nixon closed the gold window in 71 the way it, the US's role in the world has been to run deficits export dollars and with it export factories and jobs and the rest of the world's job was to be productive make stuff and in particular as as you noted, you sent me your uh, a piece you did uh, the, the the dawn of chaos, which was excellent, mm-hmm. excellent. I I, yeah. I agreed with virtually everything in it. It's very thought provoking, and you highlighted how there's been this difference from uh, the 80s and 90s up to 2000, and then 2000 to now, where it's been very much more sort of this bubble economy, bank creation of bank reserves, etc. And we've seen this play out uh, from 2000 to now in terms of this gap between. The U.S. dollar's role and what we had to do, you can see it in 2000 to now in the U.S.'s Net International Investment Position, or NIIP, which went in 1999, it was negative 3% of GDP. And last year, it was negative 50% of GDP. And there was a great article in the FT in early 2019 that speaks to why this happened as it relates to your point and Professor Werner's point regarding the difference between productive lending and lending into asset inflation and this article was entitled diagnosing your own dutch disease and the article made the point that the u.s effectively had dutch disease because after 1971 we were the saudi arabia of money and you touch on this in your in your piece uh, in that uh, the dawn of chaos which is like i said was excellent uh, the creation of reserves versus lending to the real economy is simply a natural outcome of the dollars reserve status as it's been structured post-1971. We've had to run deficits to supply the dollars, so why would US banks get into the business of making loans to productive enterprise in the US? Instead, they shift it to consumption, consumer lending, housing credit, and then also to fund asset prices, to inflate asset prices to help fund that consumption, where the Chinese and, and the East Asian banks in particular made loans to productive enterprise to produce the goods to sell to the US consumer uh, who is buying those goods from, with loans from US banks and from asset price appreciation driven by the Fed. And so our bottom line is that it, it, this problem that you identify so brilliantly in the dawn of chaos is a problem you really can't fix until you change the structure of the dollar's reserve status. And there's there's a lot of different ways you can look at that. And we're Part of the way we were able to get things right on Real Vision last June was looking at it of this lens of this process that really began back in the third quarter of 2014 when the world stopped sterilizing U.S. deficits. And that touched off a daisy chain of events that began crowding out private sector, drove dollar higher. And we can sort of touch on some of those.
0: So immediate thought bubbles in the chaos of my in the anarchy of my head. Um, What's so wrong with the present system? Uh, because I don't see it as being hugely different. I, I see it similar but better than the gold standard of the 1920s. Uh, the gold standard you had um, gold at the centre and the supply of was kind of finite. It wasn't elastic. It was hard to expand rapidly. And, and therefore, uh, if you wish to push your economy forward and you needed if you will, high-powered money that only gold could provide, then because you, you couldn't necessarily dig the thing up, you had to kind of compete and s- not steal, but you, know, you had to compete and through your endeavours of commerce take it from sovereign competition. Today, we the dollar plays that role, um, but the dollar is infinitely expandable, and so I think that's. A, from the perspective of where we see the conclusion of the gold standard, which was the overseas sector being uh, being starved of high-powered money, and the only way to seek adjustment because you couldn't do it via the external value of the currency was that the individual, uh, you know, the the regular Joe with the job, he had to we you know we had to devalue uh, his or her um, efforts and services, and we use this stick of immense um, adult unemployment to, to bring that forward. And even then, that could be with a lag of 10 years. I mean, the UK came so close to some form of communist anarchy uh, until it, it finally pivoted away. So, what's so bad with that system that we have today? There's nothing that's so
1: bad about it, but it has one flaw. One structural flaw that is only really a flaw once every fifty or sixty years, uh, as the system is structured, which is you, you when you have the neutral reserve asset, the primary new the primary excuse me the primary reserve asset of the system being the sovereign debt. Of What is effectively an insolvent sovereign or in other words, let me let me rephrase it differently when the primary reserve asset of the system, which are US Treasury bonds, once the sponsor of the system, the US government is in a position where it can never afford real positive real rates ever again because of its entitlements and its deficit spending. The system begins to break down because if you are a, you're always going to have uh, net creditors, net debtors. Some of it's geology, some of it's where you are. Right? China's always going to a- import oil. The Saudis are always oh, have have a natural resource endowment, etc. So there's there's some element of natural creditors and debtors. Once the debt levels in the system reach a point where the U.S. government can only afford to pay negative real rates to its creditors, the system begins to break down. Because if I'm, say, Russia uh, as a a real-world example, if I'm Russia and I'm selling my finite oil supplies, I have depleting oil wells, and I sell those finite oil supplies and earn dollars, and then I deploy the dollars into treasuries, but those treasuries are paying negative real rates forever, Basically, the Americans are stealing money back from me over time, and I'm going to wake up in five years or ten years or twenty years and I'm going to have a pile of paper that uh, sitting where my oil wells used to be. My oil wells will be running dry, and then I'm going to need to reimport energy or reinvest in my country one way or another with severely devalued dollars because I've had negative I've been receiving negative real rates over some period of time.
0: The stealing money. Okay, so if we go back to uh, your very elegant introduction and how you discussed the American reserve currency uh, system. Um, you discussed something which I think is unique in the history of mankind. And, and I, I, I date it well before 1971. I, I date it, I guess, uh, from this, the cinders of the Second World War. But what I want to say is it almost never happened that we had a hegemon, the United States. That was benevolent. We had a hegemon that was willing to sacrifice income in the here and now, having the foresight to recognize that all of us would benefit in the future the more that we could develop strong neighboring, sovereign cousins, if you will, yeah. And so. Let's just take it from your point, 1971. Okay. So there I am. I've been this benevolent. I have sacrificed Midwestern steel jobs. I've let it go elsewhere. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now, we're, and I've done that for 50 years, 60 years, right? Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, guys, we, we got a problem just now at base. And for the time being, the, the gig is negative real sovereign. Yeah. Been doing for sixty years. I am a moron. These people do not respect me. Over to you.
1: <laughs> you broke up there right at negative sovereign rates. So I think you're saying that basically, I the the, the payback for me shipping my jobs and everything and being the benevolent hegemon was you're going to need to take a period of negative of negative real rates over time to earn allow us to earn our way out of it and away we go. Is that effectively where you? you
0: are yeah, I, I kind of bid cool cool. You know the, yep. the grease in the system, and, and we're at a point where we kind of got to oil it. Like the hegemon yep. is you know Atlas is kind of a little bit, you know, is <laughs> is a little bit fattygate. and so i'm I'm saying it seems to me um I have contempt, if you will, from any kind of, well, I'm Russia, and Russia's not a great example. I, I am China, okay. and via via the benevolence of the United States administrations in allowing and others, but pr- principally the United States in the reserve dollar currency status. From 2001, I kind of looked the other way with a lot of kind of sharp practices. uh, And I said, no, the priorities, I want to bring a billion people into our world to give them a taste of our prosperity and our freedom. And I want to take them away from a dollar a day. And I want to get those people closer to 10,000 bucks a year. Okay, And I'm saying it's not a big ask if they've got to spend the next 10, 20 years sucking on the hosepipe of negative real sovereign yields.
1: I I, I agree with that entirely. I think the one thing that they are looking at that we as Americans are not by and large is due to the demographics of the current system and the promises the United States has made to its own citizens within the context of this system. And by that, I mean, the United States owes its baby boomers, uh, well, Richard Fisher at the Dallas Fed said it was nearly $100 trillion in Medicare and Medicaid back in 2008. So arguably, it's it's more than that now. Uh, Larry Kotlikoff has given congressional testimony in 2015, where he said the real number is closer to $223 trillion. The, regardless of what the number is, we know it's a really, really big number. It's a really, really high percentage of GDP. And we have a tiny fraction of it reserved in uh, the so-called trust funds of Social Security entitlements, et cetera. And so where I'm going with this is the one of the features of the current system is that oil and commodities are only priced in dollars, effectively. And so what China's doing, I think, apart and I think China, you and I, in one of our discussions, you made the point and, and, and that they've gamed the system, and I agree with that 100%. This system is allowing them to game it, and they're doing it, and that's a separate discussion. I agree with you 100% on that. From China's shoes, one of the things I think they're looking at, especially since 2008, because I think up to 2008, I think the whole world said the United States is man- managing the dollar for the for the good of the world. We, there, there are imperfections with this system, but by and large, to your point, this system has brought people out of poverty. It's allowed us to rebuild. There's been peace, et cetera. It's, on net, been a very good system. 100% agree with that. In 2008, I think the whole world took a step back and their jaw dropped with how the US responded to the 2008 crisis. And I think this is the true cost of the The way the Fed handled the 2008 crisis was if the if, you look at our banking crisis historically when other nations had run into a similar type of crisis that we had, and there was a great, there was a great uh, article in The Atlantic magazine in May 2009 by Simon Johnson, who was the former chief economist of the IMF, and it was called The Quiet Coup, and what he said was what the U.S. just went through is 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 very familiar to me because we saw it in Southeast Asia in the late 90s. We saw it in Russia in the early 2000s. We saw it in Latin America. We've seen this over and over. This is a banking crisis. And there's a very clear way you work through this. You, you break up the oligarchy, you reform the banks, you work down asset prices, and you go through a political reform, and then you come out the other side stronger. And whenever you have these banking crises like the US had in 08, the IMF and the U.S. as partners always did the same thing. And that led at times to some some grumbling. It could be because it was hard to work through. It was it was austerity. It was painful for the local populace, et cetera. Comes to 2008 and the U.S. says, no, 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 we're the U.S. We're just going to print the money. And so the U.S. never had to reform its oligarchies. It never had to reform the banking system. It never had to reform the political processes like happened in other countries uh, similar types of banking crisis. And the point I'm making with this as it relates to what I think China and other countries are seeing and why they are worried is the US printed, whatever it was, $3, 4000000000000 trillion. They grew the reserves by whatever they, they did. And that was how we got out of it. And I think the rest of the world said, oh, that's how the Americans are going to deal with crises in the future. And we know from demographics, right, if you have an actuarial table, you can tell, wow, there's 70 million baby boomers, and they're all going to start turning 65 in three years, and they're going to keep turning 65 for the next 20 years. And they owe the boomers somewhere between 50 and $200 trillion. The Americans are going to print 50 to $200 trillion over the next two decades. And as they do that, they are going to inflate the price of commodities to levels that are going to create dollar shortages in China, dollar shortages in Europe, uh, who are the, by, the, by far the biggest creditor nations that export energy. And so basically, I think what China in particular, Europe as well, are looking at is saying, when the Americans print the money to pay the entitlements for US baby boomers, the euro is going to collapse, the yuan is going to collapse. And so we have to move to get out of this system, or make adjustments to this system, before that happens, or else we are going to suffer a a Southeast Asia like currency crisis in Europe, and in China, and, and in China. And I think that's ultimately when you say why, you know, what what's the problem with just taking the negative rates? I think that's ultimately the problem with taking the negative rates.
0: Again, several episodes. <laughs> We have these long monologues, and I'm like, I'm trying to note these things down. Really, very. I, I, I want to make sure that we discuss the sterilization argument from the third quarter of 2014. Okay, sure. And um, mm-hmm. bef- uh, which is tied into your uh, the sovereign up- uh, the overseas sovereign appetite for U.S. Treasuries, yep. which is tied into what you're saying that as a result of how the U.S. dealt with its own crisis in 08, there's mm-hmm. a feeling that there was one rule for everyone else but you know, and a different one for them okay um but you know when you are a hegemon even a benevolent hegemon <laughs> I don't see why not I don't I don't see why not but be sure, sure. In me. M- let me make one point you. so part of this you're saying is that there's an unease in southeast Asia for these countries which owing to the misfortune of geology they have to import uh, for themselves large quantities of uh, of commodities and you said that okay so given this enormous liability and you quoted you quoted the healthcare liability uh, in excess of 200 trillion dollars i believe so 10 times us gdp okay and so uh, your the conclusion is that there will be almighty inflation and therefore as a net importer of commodities i feel that i'm i'm compromised and kind of immediately, I'm my the riposte to that is uh, Japan, I believe, began quantitative easing in 2001. Bernanke gave mutterings of it in November 2002. And we saw the real thing in 2009. Uh, The UK was quick to join the fray. And of course, the European uh, uh, the ECB has been prolific also. And so in terms of what I call, quoting Jeff Snyder, these inert central bank reserves, but we have created lots. I mean, Globally, I want to say we must be to the tune of maybe $30 trillion. And if we look at the implicit leverage, which you're allowed to use with that collateral, many many times that. And yet, if I was to take a, a measure of most of the commodity baskets from 2001 to today, really? Really? I mean, if I'm an importer of sovereign import of commodities, I have to conclude that so far, Quantitative easing has been vigorous. The quantity has been immense, but it's not obvious that the there's been a structural tear in all commodity prices. So what's I, the I, beef?
1: I think the beef is is it. it I, I agree with you in terms of you know prices. If you look at energy, two thousand one to now, uh, you know we're you had the run you had. Uh, the US obviously eased supplies dramatically with shale uh, in in terms of high prices, curing high prices, as they say. I think you have to look at it within the context of the Chinese current account. And so because prices have risen, their, cons- their imports have risen. So for example, Chinese current account went uh, into a deficit position for the first time in 20 years in the first half of 2018. And so the your point is exactly right, that if you look at it and say, wow, they haven't really risen all that much from 01 to now, if we smooth out the volatility from 08 to call it uh, 11, but the Chinese current account performance, which has steadily moved, it went negative for a bit in 2018, but over the last 10 years or so in particular. Has moved from a very high level of surplus to it's now, you know, plus or minus, it's right around that flat time. That's still been too much for them because, as if you talk to anybody who's bearish on the yuan, once they go into a deficit position, they're at risk of a currency crisis, capital flight, and social unrest for them is an absolute no go in terms of maintaining control of the situation over there. And so a currency crisis would likely touch off social unrest. And so for them, I think that's really, rather than just looking at what have commodity prices done from an absolute, hey, they were 15 bucks a barrel of oil in 2001, and it's 40 bucks a barrel today, and that's all things considered, not so bad, taking out the volatility. And I think it's more, hey, China was a 7% of GDP surplus in 2007. And I, it's, I'm i pulling the number out of the oh, air to uh, you know, one now. And when oil goes to 60, it's negative one. And if it goes to 80, it's negative four. And at some point, people go, you, you have sort of the classic Southeast Asian currency crisis. And so I think that's more the lens that uh, that is more relevant, in particular, more relevant for China in terms of how they're acting in, in trying to both game and then get out of this system.
0: So the part account that you've seen a of an explicit policy pivot from the Chinese economic growth rather than borrowing on, on uncle Sam and the the exogenous growth that they get from exporting to the United States um, and that has actually it's maintained these in, in astonishingly high levels of economic growth for a country so so large and now actually so economically rich and so you know one man's one man's QE, and, and and oil at sixty bucks is another man's Chinese central planner. And actually, having looked at the tobacco, two thousand and eight, maybe actually a strong stronger currency. Um, and and let's have positive rates in the banking sector. And with all of that boost to income domestically, you you get this rise in consumption. The CC, CCCCPF, CCC, or whatever it's called gets its economic. But as a result, you certainly do get those current account deficits.
1: You, you do. And, and the, the wild card in that is, is, and I think this also factors into their strategy, which is if you're running deficits and, you're to, and you want to do more consumption, then you're going to have to import more commodities to, to fuel that consumption. Consumption takes commodities. Uh, and as you said, they're not geologically endowed. Well, let, let's, you know, so the the so if you look just, for example, at U.S. per capita oil consumption relative to China per capita oil consumption, as much as Chinese oil consumption has grown, it's still a fraction of the U.S.'s. And there are things you can do to make your growth less energy consumption and less oil intensive over time, certainly Uh uh, but ultimately, there's a fairly decent correlation between, it's at least positive, between commodity growth and and consumption
0: growth over time. And so the but, challenge- but you're, the, you're the numbers guy. You're the, you're the numbers guy. And you know that tiny steel consumption, uh, I, I want to say in the first maybe 10 years of this this new century, uh, rivaled what the US had consumed in 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so which is to say that the model that they had- Uh, Being dependent on, which was the build out of railways and airports and infrastructure heavy, I want to say that that's a lot more consumptive. And I think the China WTO entrance in 2001 and that build up, I think that that underwrote oil prices way more than any quantitative easing uh, purges by the central banks in the West.
1: I I agree. I agree. And I think they almost. Pre-bought a lot of commodities. If you look at that way, right, in terms of of, of uh, building that out, I think increasingly the key here is is oil, right? And it's if you look at, for example, um, something an interview that Kyle Bass did in early 2019, and Kyle's talked about this a number of times, which was if you look at China's oil consumption. And if you look at China's current account, and you can see that as oil prices rise and consumption of oil rises in terms of tons of oil or barrels of oil, you you can see China moving into this situation where they are going to need the dollars to buy the oil, and they are going to run out of those dollars. And that's going to create this problem. And Kyle went on to note in the, this was a March of 2019 presentation, that the US government was noting this as well and was using this in their trade calculus that effectively a rising price of oil in dollar terms as China consumes more oil over time secularly can push them into a currency crisis. And so I think this is the side of it in terms of just this national defense side for China or the defense from currency, the risk of the currency problem that they had up a, a front row seat for in the late 1990s Uh, You can see in terms of their actions, in terms of setting up this yuan oil contract uh, where they can begin to buy oil in their own currency. Because ultimately, if you're China, you're looking at this, and Kyle's math is 100% right. They're going to keep consuming more oil, in particular oil. They know what percentage of imports that is. They have to buy it in dollars, and this is a problem particularly when the Americans begin printing all this money for entitlements. And so for China, there's really three ways, you know, a couple ways out of this. You can either uh, find a lot more oil in your own country. They've tried to do that. Like you noted, they are geologically not blessed that much, at at least relative to their consumption. You can go around the world and begin exchanging the dollars you've earned in trade for oil, commodities, supplies, et cetera. Clearly, they've been doing that. Uh, particularly in lieu of Treasury buying over the last five or seven years. Or you can do the best solution, which is to buy your oil in a better currency. And people will say, well, what's a better currency than the dollar? And the answer is, is I doubt even Putin would prefer Chinese yuan to the dollar. But if you look at what Chinese China has done, it appears they have been basically setting up deals uh, where you they can buy. Oil in their own currency, which then takes away this risk of a currency crisis in terms of oil imports, causing them to run out of dollars, uh, and shifting even just a marginal the marginal barrel to buying it in yuan. Uh, and how do they get people to take yuan? Two things. Number one, you can settle the yuan in either Chinese goods, Huawei five G, etc. Effectively settle uh, because China runs a deficit in oil, but they run a surplus in technology goods, et cetera. Or if you have some extra yuan left over, uh, they will settle in gold at a floating price. And But it won't be their gold. They've, they've learned from the mistakes of the 1971 uh, uh, gold system, where you had a fixed price, problem number one. And problem number two is the US only had so much gold, uh, they're instead, basically, when, I, when you asked before, what's the problem with the current system? And the problem with the current system is at some point, the primary reserve asset has to be a negative real rate uh, bond forever. And they're saying, you know what? One of the, 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 the quote unquote bond we will offer you is, is not negative real rates. It's 0% yielding gold. It's, a, it's an infinite, a, a 0% yielding bond of infinite duration and finite issuance. Which starts to sound really good relative to Treasuries, which are increasingly looking like zero percent yielding bonds of of finite duration and infinite issuance. And so, I okay. think that's where I think they are looking at it from. Is specifically the oil side. Because I agree with you on the other commodity side.
0: Okay, I am going to put my big foot in it. I am going to do the the unheard of thing. Um, recall real vision rules. Um, <laughs> I think Cobas is. Um, I haven't seen him in a long time. Um, if I saw him today, I'd, I'd, I'd see him and welcome him as a friend. I have enormous respect, um, more than respect. He has that Texas charm. Um, however, when it comes to China and it comes to the, the Chinese currency, um, he's been timed out. In the world of global macro, three years is an eternity. Um, Second thing, the problem with getting others to exist to, so I'm China, and I don't want to buy oil in dollars. And so I go to c- commodity-producing nations, and I say, "Hey, let's cut a side deal, you know." And first of all, what I'm going to pay you in CNH. I mean, CNH is just is, is just a dollar wrapper. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, you know? the the other side of it is is trap capital. Okay, so just a CNH, it's just a dollar wrapper. So it's the same thing. Okay, but more than that. I'm a, look at me, I'm Australia, and I've got this hideous reg- political regime. And I know we're here to talk about politics, but they kind of go hand in hand. The US was a benevolent hegemon. China has shown no evidence that it would ever deign to have any benevolence. And that it is with Australia, one of its largest commodity producers, and it's being hideous. Why would any nation want to cut a deal to accept their tin pot fant- as a deal with the devil. Lastly, and I think most pertinently, is that Chinese corporates are very secure and happy owning the domestic currency. They really have very little appetite for the dollars that they receive from their overseas commercial activities. And therefore, they supply them straight back to the Chinese authorities. And with and and the silly little point with Tesla, where it is, the idea that China is going to run out of dollars to be able to secure enough oil, I just I think you I think you and everyone else is better than that, Luke. It just doesn't stack up. What am I missing? I think when you look at
1: that current account, um, I think. That when you look at that current account going into deficit in the first half of 2018, uh, for the first time in 20 years, to me, I think was a a a a key moment when you look at that in terms of um, prospective Chinese oil demand. When you look at Chinese tourism, right? Because the two things that put it there were commodity prices and, and tourism outflows. Uh, now we can say, hey, they've bought time, ironically, with tourism outflows. Um, Given what's happened with COVID and globally, Um, uh, but I think really uh, it's it's about that current account being a a a foreign nation with a current account deficit um, in their position, uh, which is they need to import oil to and, Mm -hmm. and other commodities to sort of keep things copacetic internally. Uh, that's where I really look at it in terms of this this quote unquote dollar shortage because I, I think you're right I'm the, on the I think you have to break that current account down into two components I think you have to look at the non commodity side that that you're referring to uh, that Chinese corporates are supplying into and receiving dollars and willingly turning over 100% agree with you on that that side is going to be a net dollar surplus and then you have this other side which we'll say is is the commodity side and is is in deficit, and is going to if China keeps growing, continue to be in deficit, more deficit every year, and that 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 line of which it is moving in deficit will become nonlinear if you have a price spike in oil or in other commodities. Again, I think that is uh, how you have to look at that, and I think that's I think that's how they're looking at it, which is. We're fine with with managing our current account here on the side of, uh, on on, on the non-commodity produced goods, where we have a growing problem or incipient problem, and whether that problem is two years, five years, 10 years, um, or whether it started in first half 18 when they ran into a a current account deficit for the first time in in 20 years. that's something they, they have to address over time, or else it's it's simply a structural weakness
0: that that can be exploited. So Charles Kindleberger, the, the 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 granddaddy of of Macron, and sadly Manias Panics, whatever it's called, that wonderful book, um, it would drive you to it would have driven driven you to bankruptcy in the last ten years, unfortunately. But <laughs> regardless, it's still a, an astonishing work of intellectual uh, feat and ingenuity, but. Um, there's nothing wrong with current account deficits. Okay, you kind of, as you know, you've got to take one step back and you've got to examine the productivity of the investment. If you, as a sovereign nation, are consistently securing high rates of return on your investment, me and my cohorts in the market pray that you will persist. I think Singapore, and you're the chart guy. I think you'll be able to produce a chart on this. Singapore, for many, many, many years, um, uh, was willing to do, was able to do that, and it was not an issue. Just finally, um, Chinese currency. Um, where, where are you on that in terms of um, um, is it a store of is it a store of value at its present valuation? Um, and taking all the politics aside uh, would you would you regard it as a store of value like would you denominate 15 20% of your net wealth in CNH today no. at these levels no. okay Absolutely. and why why I, it's I, 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 I'm I'm astonished that you say that but why no yeah it's
1: it's funny I get the reputation as, as somehow as being people of that that I may A a yuan is going to take over for for the dollar as the reserve currency of the world, which I have never written, never said anywhere. We've been in business for seven years. I've never said that anywhere. What I have said is that the way out of the dollar trap, the way to fix this system without blowing the system up, without the system collapsing chaotically, uh, which would be bad for everybody, is... It's it's remarkably simple, actually. Uh, it's it's mechanically simple. It's politically very difficult, and that is, you have to price commodities and, in particular, energy, in the SDR currencies, and then you have to settle any imbalances in a neutral reserve asset. And so, basically, instead of having oil only priced in dollars, U.S. can buy it in dollars, China can buy it in yuan the Japanese can buy it in yen, the uh, the Europeans can buy it in euro, so on and so forth. And then basically what this does is it it removes the, uh, it, it's basically the Bancor system that was the other system proposed at Bretton Woods. It's the system the Chinese have been trying to, um, that we're have been trying to propose since 2009, uh, PBOC's Zhao in March of 2009, right after we did the big QE said, listen, we need to move to a neutral settlement asset. And so the, the for me, where the system, I think, is going, particularly as it relates to energy, is the dollar's not losing its usage. It's, it's not going to be replaced with yuan. But the you're already seeing and have been seeing for the last seven years, central banks have stopped storing treasuries. They have been storing gold instead. And so would I take yuan? I would take you on yes and i would immediately flip that into gold and hold that in gold because that is becoming it's coming back into the system as the reserve par excellence and it's the system the chinese want because to your point the deficits it is not necessarily a problem to run deficits it's a political problem for the chinese because they saw what the americans just did which is and the europeans by the way don't want to do it either Because if you run deficits, basically, you have to hollow out your manufacturing sector. Over time, you have to ship jobs elsewhere. And what that does is it creates a debt-fueled consumption and government spending party for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And at the back end of that, the devil takes the hindmost. Basically, your sovereign levels are too high. You've been completely hollowed, hollowed out of manufacturing. Your manufacturing base is sitting in a country that may or may not have your best interest at heart. And so, its its deficits are not necessarily a problem economically. I agree, they're a problem politically, as we're suddenly finding out in the United States when we said, "Hey, we need those antibiotics and those PPE for COVID," and the Chinese go, "Well, hold on a sec, we'll get that for you after we take care of ourselves." And so, to answer your question, I don't think the yuan is taking over. But I would would I take it? Yeah, I would take it. I would immediately redeploy it into gold uh, if I, I get dollars. Do I hold dollars? I hold as few dollars as I can. I would redeploy them immediately into gold or into U.S. assets that will better compensate me for the inflation that has to come if we're going to pay the baby boomers what they're theoretically owed. And that, by the way, ties in really nicely with your point that you make in in Dawn of Chaos and uh, in your other recent public appearances in terms of this asset price inflation that's coming in in, in your view. and, And that's a view I agree
0: with wholeheartedly. There was a few things you said there. I
1: was, <laughs> I was
0: grinding my teeth. Um,
1: I could see. I'm so, sorry. I'm,
0: I'm a talker. I, I, forgive. Me. I could never. I could never play poker because you can read my page. <laughs> <laughs> So dollar trap again. You know, so there we have the the Chinese uh, turning up at you know the prestigious and international events with sovereign leaders and and giving carefully considered. Uh, economic arguments in favor of the simple solution: the uh, having the uh, commodity settled in in SDRs, uh, and then settling using the SDR currency baskets and settling in a in a, in a neutral currency. First and foremost, like China, and like you know, and and then kind of bitching about U.S. politics. First of all, you know, sort clean your own stables. You know, come uh, without capital controls to the table, and then preach. Okay, I'm listening. When you're playing the same game. Number two, the problem that I perceive and why the problem that I perceive with this fascination with the SDR currency basket as an alternative to the dollar is, and and why I take umbrage to this dollar trap, is that it pushes you back to the 1920s model where the system to underwrite and to finance expansion of commerce you are being tethered and you're being held back by having a core reserve which is not elastic and which cannot respond. You know, can you imagine the bureaucratic nightmare in trying to expand that SDR basket to breathe life and energy into an ailing world economy? I think that would be far more troubling. My third point is. What I want, I'm going to call debtor creditor. The U.S. the hegemon, like Jesus on the cross, or whatever your religion, he said, you know what? Throw your spears. I'll be the debtor of last resort. Uh, but as we know, he's he's ailing. Okay, but on what I mean by crucify me on the cross of being a debtor, what I mean by that is I will volunteer to hollow out. What did you say about the, the fear of the Chinese if we go down that road, uh, that route and have these deficits, then we end up hollowing out manufacturing? And my point is, again, how dare they say that? We've sat there for 50 years, and we've taken it, and now we say, you know what, shoe sh- fits for you as well, right? Why don't we swap roles? Time for the, this is why you have Trump, right? Trump is a debtor president. Brexit in the United Kingdom is policy initiated by the downtrodden. It's like, why is it always me? Why can't Germany hollow out? Why can't Beijing hollow out? So, why can't it hollow out? Why is it everything, why has everything today got to be designed to benefit the Chinese and the Europeans, everyone but Uncle Sam?
1: Well, I think it, it has benefited Uncle Sam. it's just simply not benefited the 99% of Americans. It's benefited, if you look at the wealth, it's benefited uh, Washington, D.C., right? There was a great story a couple years ago um, in the Washington Post noting that uh, I think it was 70% of the wealthiest counties in America were around Washington, D.C. What does Washington, D.C. produce? What do they export? They export dollars. If you look since 2000, anyone involved in the dollar export business and the treasury export business has gotten very, very wealthy. And everyone who's not has fallen behind. And so I think it speaks to the political problem that it's created here in terms of Trump, et cetera, without a doubt. Uh, but I think part of the reason the Chinese don't do that and the part of the reason the Europeans don't do that, and, and when you say the Europeans, you, you, it's centered around the Germans, I would argue, um, is I think even though it was so long ago, the institutional memory of how that movie ends is still so, it, it's almost buried in their genes of, yeah, when when the Germans, you know, you and I, uh, you made the point in uh, the, either in our Twitter discussion or in the Dawn of Chaos, when the Germans had their industrial base ripped away after World War I, they know what came next. The Chinese, when they started going to this uh, redeemable paper, uh, they invented this game in terms of, they they saw what happened in the 1800s. I think it is still so deeply ingrained that it's simply a, a, a red line for them. And so I think that's because I agree with you, all else equal, they should. Now, with that said, Uncle Sam doesn't want to do that either, because what you describe of, hey, let them run the deficits for a while, that effectively is, hey, the euro and the yuan become much more reserve currencies to replace the dollar. And yeah. that sounds good, right up to the point you tell that to Washington, and Washington says, ixnay, right? they No, we're not going to do that. And so they're, you're in this Mexican standoff, if you will, where everybody wants their cake and wants to ha- wants to have their cake and eat it, too. The Americans want to... Yeah partially lose reserve status, but they don't. And the Germans and the Chinese partially want to keep their industrial base, but they also don't. And no one can really figure out what they want. And unfortunately, that that keeps pushing us toward this point where this system
0: breaks down chaotically, as as you noted, um, yeah. through the politics of it, unfortunately. Through the politics. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. So great. Well done. Now we can examine some of the things where I think you, you truly add value. And but, but I, I think I've still got pushback, so sure, nice.
1: <laughs> Get I, your I, gloves I, on. Yeah. This is creepy, um, me. absolutely for sure.
0: So I am fascinated, and I'm frustrated because I think it reflects where I I lack intelligence in some areas. I th- I want to say we must have been run about 2016 with the emergence of the negative yielding U.S. Treasury when dollar hedged.
1: Yeah, uh, it was, uh, yeah, three uh, Q eighteen. Yeah, about two thousand three Q eighteen is. I mean, it they, I, they were a little negative in sixteen, but they went really negative in three Q eighteen. But no, I'm sorry, okay. I, I, I go ahead. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. no, because I, I I was still I, I ran the the Macro eclectica Hedge Fund until third quarter of seventeen, and and we were definitely aware of it through seventeen. as you say, but and, yeah, then, it and starting, then it became yeah, yeah, it became yeah. bigger. So for, first of all, I make I may call upon you a uh, public service uh, from you if you could with your majestic uh, charts. If you could put that in some context, perhaps in the future, perhaps if you could give us the narrative now. So you you take that forward, and you, and, and and the facts bear this out that the emergence of that negative hedged dollar hedged return kind of took the energy out of overseas consumption of treasuries. Okay, okay. What I'd like to see and know and understand is how negative. And how commercially unappealing that treasury return is. So, really, this only has relevance to a Cayman investor, or let's say a large private institution that invests in sovereign bonds on behalf of their clients, and that has sterling liabilities. Okay, and principally their choices: JGBs, boons, um, and dollars. And uh, so, within that that trinity, because I know my, in, in nominal terms I'm negative on on two of them in in the dollar I'm getting 50. What I don't know is when I as a sterling investor let's say because we need a neutral starting point, just how negative is the dollar versus its two cousins.
1: So I've actually not looked at it recently. I would tell you that when it went negative really uh, and it's I think it's turned positive again recently, which is why we've started to see these really good longer dated treasury auctions recently and uh, there's a couple different reasons for that, not not least of which is the, the, the modest dollar weakness we've seen over the last three months. Um, but I would tell you that at one point last year, right? So they went really negative. They, they went neg. They went negative for a bit in 16, like you said, uh, the dollar weakened in 17, and and sort of normalized that a bit. And then they went notably negative. Uh, FX hedge treasury yields, and I just use the 10 year as a proxy. Uh, across a different, the, and 3Q18 went negative. At one point in 2019, as an American investor, I was getting, I want to say, on the nominally negative boons, I was getting like 2 to 3% positive after the hedging costs were factored in. Whereas I was getting whatever I was getting at the time of the 10 year, one one and a quarter or, or one ten, one, you know, one whatever whatever it was before we had that that collapse in yields earlier this year. And so it was uh, now, of course, the risk is, is that you have to roll those every every year, uh, in terms of the FX hedges. And so it's it's not exactly apples to apples, but the issue was really it introduced a choice for the first time. They that 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 basically hedged uh, hedge for FX, it was much more attractive for the marginal private sector bid to buy JGBs or buy bonds than it was uh, treasuries from basically 3Q18 through, I, I think, earlier this year, um, maybe late last year. Um, but okay. what that then does is, given Basel three and the banking regulations in terms of uh, capital uh, ratios that had to be maintained, is beginning in 3Q18, it, Basel three was effectively serving as a gold standard of, of, of sorts, where basically, once FX hedge treasury yields went negative, um, the US banking system the U S. Uh, and the US uh, private sector, more broadly, had to begin in financing more of its own deficits for the first time in arguably 70 years. And we began crowding out global dollar markets, and that ultimately, that lens was uh, when you said, "Were you just lucky when you got on Real Vision back last June?" The answer is no, it's because we were using this lens, and we were saying, "Look, this this Basel III as structured is basically a gold standard. It's basically forcing, uh, you know, in in the context of negative hedged FX, uh, a negative FX hedged treasury yields, the banking system's going to run out of capital to buy treasuries, and this this is going to be a problem." And people would say, "Well," why aren't long-dated Treasury yields rising then? And our point was, look at where all the issuance is. All the issues, 75% of the issuance was being done at six months or less. And so the, when when this is a problem, the blowup's going to be right at the front end of the curve, not the back end. And oh, by the way, it's going to cause the curve to invert, and it's going to flatten and then invert, which is going to make the problem worse faster. And so sure enough, in September, we came in one day and repos at 8 to 10%, and the Fed had to come in quickly and um, that was really the lens that we set, and that was just sort of the tail end of the whole, you know, the the, the lack of uh, sterilization of, of U.S. deficits at the central bank level that began in three Q fourteen.
0: Yeah. So the sterilization is is I think really, really, really uh, important. And, and again, I kind of want to I want to offer that and. There'll be smarter people than me who who like hear me say this and just go oh god really um, but anyway here it goes that I I kind of think of that negative dollar hedge and again per se the fact that it, it was negative I think is just a tiny little bit kind of redundant if they're all negative and perhaps they're more negative but clearly you like when you were talking that was not the case and it was a great call um, and and I'm thinking because I thought about it if I was a policymaker that's not good for me. And so I would want to influence influence that. And so as I, as I went down that rabbit hole, I began to rationalize that a negative dollar hedged uh, return on treasuries would perhaps indicate a great degree of confidence by the overseas sector that the dollar was likely to appreciate vis-a-vis like the yen and the euro. And therefore, you'd be willing to take a loss, if you will, on the initial yield, and because your return was going to be more in the form of the appreciation. I can't prove that, okay, um, but it takes me into the sterilisation and the fact that because where I differ from you is, I believe you make the claim that sovereign monetary authorities took a decision, maybe as far back as 2014, uh, to stop deploying reserves and buying treasury. And kind of somehow you make them sound like hedge funds, profit motivated, you know, NEV considerations. And you know, we, we kind of we think we get a better bang for a buck elsewhere. Normally I believe in the cock-up theory, number one, but <laughs> in, in this case, I don't think it's a cock-up. In in this case, um, it was a function of kind of as you're saying, the ch- China going to current account deficit, um, losing the mojo of of those of those exports and therefore not having the same quantum of dollars, like hitting the commercial account of a Chinese exporter, who then returns it back to the center. Okay. So what I want to say, really, as you look at the charts, and, and the profound is, kind of only two years after the US began on the route to quantitative easing. So really, I want to say from the beginning of 2012, the dollar index has appreciated. So theoretically, we have created more and more dollars, and yet each marginal dollar is valued more highly than at the beginning, which I kind makes me say that they haven't created dollars. But, you know. So what I want to say is that central banks sterilize. Central banks are happy to buy US treasuries at any price in order to prevent their currency appreciating significantly vis-a-vis the US dollar, and that in the last six, seven years, that wasn't the case. Really what I want to put to you is that the fact that the dollar appreciated. I'm looking at the DXY, I want to say it kind of moved from 75 to to 100 from the beginning of 2012. I think that upward pressure in the dollar took away all incentive, all need for monetary authorities overseas to buy treasuries. And so I want to say to you, if we were to flip that and reverse that, then those same monetary authorities would be coming in and buying in a kind of price-insensitive manner US treasuries.
1: I agree. I think ultimately, and that's something we've said, is is this dollar positive feeds on itself. This, this dollar strength feeds on itself because- you have the dollar go from 75 to 100. And I think in three, Q- I'll set aside something I'll add it but after to this um, in regards to energy. Uh, but from, say, from 2012 to, 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 to the 75, the move in the Dixie from 75 to 100, um, ultimately takes away that central banking bid for Treasuries at a time when demographics, and now the economy, et cetera, are sending US deficits that need to be financed into effectively uh, at a higher rate. Um, They're expanding these deficits significantly. But because of the dollar being where it is, there's no need for these other central banks to buy it. And so the US then has to finance its own deficits for the first time in 70 years. That crowds out dollar markets more, sends the dollar higher, further disincents global central banks buying treasuries, further puts pressure on the US banking sector to buy more. And ultimately, the system breaks down. And this has been sort of our ongoing point. It's a little bit of a chicken and the egg question. But even if we flip it versus how we've said it to how you say it, which I, I, I don't really argue with, uh, it gets us to the same point, which is unless the dollar falls meaningfully, the only financier of U.S. deficits. Once the U.S. private sector runs out of balance sheet, is the Fed, and it's that exact calculus that allowed us to go on Real Vision last June and say, "Look, the Fed's going to regrow their balance sheet in a matter of months, and when they do that, stocks aren't going to fall; they're going to melt up." And in the year end, and that was our call, and that that lens was exactly what what allowed us to see that. And you still have that problem today. Now it's been mitigated to a large extent, I think. Um, by what the Fed has done, obviously, year to date in terms of growing the reserves, buying treasuries, effectively financing those deficits. But I think also something that's been very underappreciated has been what the Fed did in April, which was to quietly suspend the supplementary liquidity ratios for the US banking system only as it relates to treasuries, which basically means US banks can buy as many treasuries as they want. There's Effectively, there's few, but... um, And as long as the rates are nominally positive, it's the greatest gig in the world. You and I would love that. I would buy every treasury in the world I could, funding it basically zero, and even at 10 basis points. It's it's a nice little positive spread. And so lo and behold, I don't know if you've seen the Fed H.8 report yet for June. Did you see how much banking banking sector holdings of treasuries and mortgage backs were up for June? 48%. 48%. And so what you're- it's incredible. And so you're seeing them basically sort of play these show games to finance these deficits. The corollary to your to your great point is if the US doesn't if the Fed wants to step away from buying treasuries, if the US wants the banking system to be able to step away from buying treasuries, the dollar's got to go down to reattract that that bid from the foreign central banking sector who have the balance sheets to, to do that.
0: That's where some of your charts really kind of kind of helped me. Um, because, and again, that's why I want to return, and I, I want to kind of complement and and sponsor the existing system. We've just not been using the full capacity of the system. The system needs more dollars. That's why the dollar has appreciated. The market's telling you we have a scarcity. Uh, the Fed's not printing enough, or the, the manner in which the Fed, the Fed has engineered monetary creation is kind of redundant. And there's an argument in favor of window guidance and having commercial banks. That's real high-powered money, OK? The the tr- the Treasury infinite leverage is, is a masterstroke. OK, I think that's great. But the Fed needs help, and it needs help from the Treasury. And if the Treasury were to make a, a unilateral a declaration that US policy was that they would prefer to see the dollar trade back, let's say it's 75, then you would find that the overseas sector would bridge the gap and like say's loss, supply will always be, you know, it will always be filled as the Italian government and as BTPs continues <laughs> to 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 generate. So to my mind, I think it's just inevitable. It's binary. Either like you would argue, the, the dollar Dixie goes 105 and higher and you know the world comes to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, or the Treasury intervenes and, and makes some declaration to talk down. And the, the advantage of the system is that at the core, the dollar is elastic and expandable. And the policy failure since 2012 is that they failed to make it elastic and expandable.
1: I, I agree. And I think an important step in that process may have been taken back in March. If you look when Donald Trump signed the National Defense Production Act, at the same time, or excuse me, not signed, but invoked, the National Defense Production Act. and Then you've listened to what the Department of Defense has said uh, since then in terms of saying, we're now in a great power competition with China. When you listen to what the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee said in their April piece, which is they said, we should consider moving back to a wartime finance model, uh, citing what happened in the United States during World War II, I think they're dropping hints, not necessarily of the f- Treasury coming out and saying, we're going to take the Dixie to 75, or we'd prefer it at 75, but I think de facto, that's where they're moving. In other words, they're saying, we're just going to spend money, and the Fed's going we, we, to- the- we were basically putting together the Fed and Treasury. We're removing that mythical wall between the two, and we're just going to spend money until- You guys get it until the dollar goes where we want it to go. And that's probably, in my view, the better way to do it. A, we get more out of it. We can sort of um, take advantage of the system to our benefit for a change instead of just letting the Chinese always take advantage of the system to their benefit. Uh, And it's also, from a market standpoint, the thing you don't want to do, in my view, is the challenge always in, in in doing these bilateral announcements, particularly in something like the dollar, is if you come out and say, hey, the price of the dollar uh, tomorrow when we open on Monday is, or when we open in Asia tonight, is 75, is now you've created a crisis somewhere because somebody was long dollars. I mean, you know how it goes, right? And The leverage in the system. Whereas if you just have Treasury come in and you just steadily do, we're going we're gonna to spend more. We're going to spend more. I mean- It'll be interesting to see if we, we ran an $830 billion deficit last month. Let's just keep running $800 billion deficits and having the Fed basically soak up whatever's needed and have the banking balance sheet grow 40% a month or 40% year over year in terms of their treasury holdings and let the dollar sort of figure it out. And if we wake up a year from now and the dollar is 70, 75 or something, that's a world that's much more stable. Uh, It's a world that is very good for global growth, right? We saw in 2017, dollar fell 10 to 12%. It was the biggest drop in 25 or 30 years. And as we came out of 17 into 18, the call from strategists all over the world was global coordinated growth. And global coordinated growth wasn't global coordinated growth. It was dollar down 12%. And as soon as the dollar bottomed in February it began rising by, you know, July, August of that year, everyone was writing their uh, you know, the obituaries for global coordinated growth because the dollar was rising and and rebreaking that system. So I, I agree with you. i I think getting it there one way or another is how you fix it. And I think i'm I'm optimistic, and we've been writing this to our clients really since March, April, is some of the political moves you're seeing out of the United States in terms of the seeming, uh, marriage or increasing at least, maybe they're not married yet, but they're. I think they're dating the Fed and the Treasury, that is, I think if you just let them date for a while and maybe get married, uh, the dollar will do what the dollar needs to do. And
0: then you can keep the system going. OK, well, I think that's a super way to end it. We have these teenagers possibly copulating and the dollar be <laughs> the dollar will be. Luke, I, I, first of all, I want to thank our audience, as always. Uh, I want to thank you. I want to thank our host. Uh, Uh, real vision. Um, uh, But thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for your time, Hugh. It was a a real blast. And I really enjoyed talking to you. uh, got to flush out a lot of different issues. So I appreciate your time.